Welcome again to The Empowering Neurologist. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. Several months ago, it seems like a, a long time ago, I had the opportunity to give a lecture along with uh, Dr. Austin Perlmutter in New York uh, with, uh, in a restaurant uh, hosted by chef, uh, award-winning uh, Michelin-starred chef uh, David Boulay. And David Boulay has described our guest today on The Empowering Neurologist, uh, Dr. Umanedu, and this is her book. We're going to talk about this in just a moment called This Is Your... Uh, brain on food. Da, uh, David Boulay has described her as the world's first triple threat uh, in the food as medicine space. You know, we, a lot of us who are in integrative slash functional medicine consider ourselves to be in the, the food as medicine space because we talk about the healthful properties of, of being on a, on a good diet. Uh, Dr. Nadu is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist. She's also a professional chef graduating with a culinary degree, uh, with uh, the most coveted award uh, from a culinary school and uh, as a nutrition specialist. Her niche is working uh, with nutritional psychiatry. You know, that's a term we haven't heard a lot about, uh, but we certainly will moving forward, especially today. Uh, so she's regarded nationally as well as internationally as a medical pioneer in this field. Uh, she, in her role as a clinical scientist, she uh, has founded and directs the first uh, in-hospital, hospital-based uh, clinical services uh, in nutritional psychiatry that uh, in the United States. She's the director of nutritional and lifestyle psychi uh, psychiatry at the very prestigious Massachusetts General Hospital and director of nutritional psychiatry at MGH uh, Academy while serving at the same time on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. She graduated from Harvard Longwood Psychiatry Residency Training Program in Boston, during which she was the recipient of multiple awards, including the Junior Investigator Award from the American Psychiatric Association, Leadership Development for Physicians and Scientists Award from Harvard, as well as being the very first psychiatrist to be awarded the coveted Curtis Prout Scholar in Medical Education. The American Psychiatric Association has now asked her to author the first academic text in nutritional psychiatry. Uh, and as mentioned, she is the author of this uh, new book, uh, This Is Your Brain on Food. Uh, just want to say that, think about it, that there will soon be an academic text championed by the American Psychiatric Association dealing with the role of nutrition in terms of relating to psychiatry. We're really really moving forward. How exciting. So also exciting is the interview we'll do today. So let's jump right into it. Hello, Dr. Naidu. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thanks, Dr. Palmada. Thanks for having me. Oh, I am absolutely delighted. You know, um, we've been, there's been a lot of literature. A lot of us has been, have been working really hard in the area of nutrition and nutritional influences on preservation of cognition and actually even treating uh, cognitive decline when you look at the work of Dr. Bredesen, for example. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, you have really hit the ball out of the park in really opening up uh, our understanding of the powerful influence of nutrition as it relates to uh, psychiatric uh, situations. And I'm going to turn the tables on you right now, because this is a question I get all, all the time 
<laughs> and I've probably answered it a hundred times, but what, uh, you know, here you are as a psychiatrist, but what caused you to suddenly, maybe it wasn't sudden, realize that there was benefit in considering the foods that people were consuming as it relates to your discipline? I think that's a great question, and thank you for for asking me that. Um, the I think it really started as I was training in psychiatry, and I, I was learning the psychopharmacology of the medications I was starting to prescribe. I felt uh, food had always mattered to me since childhood for other reasons, um, but I felt that a certain responsibility in terms of explaining lifestyle and physical health changes to my patients. So I grew up in a in in, a, in thinking about world world the world and health in a very holistic way and i felt that if i was going to prescribe a medication my patients should know the side effects and one uh one story that always brings it to mind for me is sitting in my community clinic as a resident and a coffee a, a patient brought in there in you know we live in boston so we love dunkin donuts coffee and uh patient brought in a 20 ounce size of coffee and he at the same time was complaining about the weight he had gained on the medication i had prescribed which was an ssri and i looked at the coffee and i said to him that's that's a good size coffee you get that every morning and as the conversation went on further we calculated that he put a half a cup, a quarter cup of cream, between a quarter to a half a cup of cream in a 20 ounce size of coffee and about uh, eight teaspoons of sugar. And we broke that down and helped him to understand that just by making that tweak, he could not only save himself and some fat calories, but make healthier choices. And that was a pivotal moment for me that I still remember because I, I started to make that connection myself and then I took it further from there. I'm kind of envious that you had a pivotal moment because I, every, when I'm asked that question, I don't, I don't think I had a pivotal moment. So for you, it's this patient uh, with the Dunkin' Donuts coffee and all the sugar, and, and that was sort of the opportunity for you. It, it was. And I, honestly, at the time, I didn't realize that because I, what I began doing, it's almost as though hindsight taught me that that it was that moment that I was like, oh, um, but I, what it did for me in that moment is it made me more curious. And we know that there's a very large gap in our education and nutrition at medical school. So I, I wanted to read more and learn more and understand how to advise my patients. And that's really how it grew. Um, clearly, I love food and I have a passion for that, but, but I also felt I needed to know a little bit more of the science behind it. Well, your book, you begin by talking about something that many of our viewers uh, at least have heard, and that is uh, the connection between the gut and the brain. Mm -hmm. But you go so far as to care. We, we talk about the gut-brain connection or brain-gut connection from your yeah. office point of view. Right. You call it a romance. Why do you call it, why do you embellish it so much? I, uh, I felt it was, I thought about that, and I felt it was a really interesting way to introduce people to the idea. I know that people hear about the microbiome, the gut-brain connection, or the brain-gut connection, but I also felt it was a way to share with them that just like the romance in real life, there are some good moments and there are some bad moments, and sometimes in between. And in a very similar way, um, this relationship between our brain and our gut changes all the time. And for me, it brought, it brought home the impetus and the importance of what they ate, because truly, things can change in a matter of a day. 
So what you put in your mouth every single day does make a difference. And we all slip up and there's no perfect world. And we have a meal that we think, oh, I could have eaten healthier. But you can always self-correct at the next meal. So that, that was why I chose, I, I chose, that, uh, chose that line. So um, I want to uh, guess here that perhaps, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, as it relates to, for example, mood disorders, that was there a degree of frustration in terms of not having really powerful tools from a pharmaceutical perspective? You've hit the nail on the head. Um, I Not only did I feel that we... We didn't have the absolutely, we didn't have the best medications as much as they work, and, and I still prescribe medications even now. But I found that people would, not everyone would fit into a diagnostic category, and I definitely think that we know um, the DSM 5TR is, is challenged. It's, it's diagnostic criteria, and many people do not fit into those criteria. Um, so that was one aspect of it. And the other aspect was even individuals who had access to care and were able to get a medication, many of them simply didn't get better. And for me, that felt, uh, it made me even more sad and, and made me feel ineffective. And I thought, there's something I need to do about this. Um, I need to, to figure out ways that, uh, that there are lifestyle changes, which I know are hugely important, but why aren't we having these conversations with our patients, we ask about smoking. We ask about all sorts of questions, you know, all sort of important questions in the history. But why aren't we asking what they're eating and what they're doing um, for movement or exercise or, or sleep? Um, all of those components. Well, I will say that uh, in your book, uh, it's not just your opinion. You know, you're, you've used wonderful peer-reviewed medical citations throughout the book to justify. Yeah the recommendations that you make, which I think I don't want it to be lost, but you just added in other lifestyle issues like exercise, et cetera. Um, as it relates to anxiety, one of the interesting things, you know, we've, we've been hearing about anti-anxiety foods, but you made it clear in your book that the research would indicate that while you can get tryptophan uh, from uh, various foods like dried fruit and uh, turkey, et cetera, that the research really doesn't support those foods, but it really tends to more be supportive of taking tryptophan as a supplement as it relates to being beneficial towards treating anxiety. Um, so how does that play out in terms of a dietary recommendation? So that's uh, interesting because tryptophan is, is not only so important, uh, there are two things that I, that I discovered uh, that were new information, uh, new scientific information for me to integrate my understanding of tryptophan. One was that um, tryptophan on its own, in, in, its, in, in, in the form that it's, say, maybe eaten from, uh, from say, Thanksgiving turkey, um, does, not, does not necessarily enter the brain in that form. Um, secondly, it usually, uh, actually, there are three things. The second thing is that it's also formed, found in things like chickpeas, so they're a very rich source of tryptophan. And the third is that absorption into the brain is if impacted by eating them with carbohydrates. So I make a little joke in the book talking about, so, you know, we, we may think it's just the turkey we eat at Thanksgiving, but it actually might be the mashed potatoes that make the difference. And what the studies showed was that uh, because tryptophan is such a big play in terms of the serotonin pathway synthesis and the major neurochemicals, it interacts in that way. So, you know, I think there are certain instances in situations such as anxiety where we think about 
supplementing what we would like people to eat in foods like zinc. You may get a ton of zinc from oysters, but not everyone eats oysters. And the plant sources of zinc are much smaller. So, you know, you, you, it's almost like you have to tweak it in, in, in a very personalized way for every single patient. Well, I think, you know, that's why they call them supplements, because if you are able to track down foods that are high in one thing or another, maybe that, that's good enough. Let's explore just a little bit deeper the role of serotonin and anxiety and depression and how uh, inflammation that we might experience in our bodies from gut permeability, from eating perhaps allergenic foods and, or, and other sources like glycation of our proteins from having a high blood sugar, how might inflammation uh, be something, A, that can influence these mood disorders and B, something that we could then target in order to experience some improvement? The best way I could probably describe it is, is that um, a client that I saw who was referred to me for severe panic. And uh, as I took a, took a history, uh, his primary care physician asked him to speak with me. As I took you know, a lengthy history, I uncovered that the, 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 the most uncomfortable symptom for him was his irritable bowel symptoms. And so as we sort of unpacked the information, it turned out that he had changed his diet he was uh, a young, a young father, and uh, he and his wife were enjoying enjoying their first child. But it had become stressful. His sleep had changed. He was more stressed. Um, uh, he had to work more because his wife took a little bit of time off, and all of these things changed his diet because fast foods became more accessible. Uh, you know, store bought processed foods were easier. The, um, the vending machine at work became accessible when he had forgotten to pack lunch or a snack. And his diet had changed over a period of about six months. And as he noticed that, he also noticed that he suddenly had these symptoms that his primary care doctor were calling irritable bowel that he had not had before. We made the connection slowly between the significant change in his diet um, from usually eating home-cooked meals and a pretty Pretty healthy, well-rounded diet, um, not, the, not, not the typical sad diet, as we call it, um, a standard American diet, but, but he was, had been a relatively healthy eater. And all of this had flipped over on itself. And, and as, we, as we explained it to him, and, and I like to use this example, as he was eating poorer nutrients in the food, um, they were impacting the lining of his gut. And... 90% or more of the serotonin receptors are found in the gut. So inevitably what was happening is as his gut was being impacted and the term leaky gut was something I explained to him, then the bi-directional communication between the gut and the brain through the vagus nerve was impacted. Serotonin was impacted directly from that. And the inflammation that was being created by these processed and ultra-processed foods that he was now eating literally damaging this really thin um, foam, this this layer in the gut. Now, usually we'll, uh, from my culinary background, I'll say to, to say to someone, you know, you know, you know, have you ever seen a sausage being fold? Well, the lining for the sausage is really as thin as some of the lining is in the gut. So it's delicate. That's, that's a way to convey that it's delicate. And the serotonin levels are impacted. And what happened was that he then developed significant anxiety to the point that he had what we thought was a full-blown panic attack. But when we looked at the root cause, it had been this dietary change 
that led to inflammation in his gut, impacted serotonin, became, you know, intestinal permeability or as it's called, leaky gut, and then impacted inflammation in his brain, thereby impacting his neurochemicals. Well, I would say to our viewers, you know, keep in mind that when you, uh, if you are visiting uh, an integrative uh, slash functional medicine practitioner, oftentimes these days, you know, there are tests available that can determine gut permeability and levels of inflammation that really can, can give you kind of a, um, a you know, a, a powerful sense that this might be the location where you, we need to pay attention because, uh, I mean, in your book, for example, you talk about ways of healing that. Uh, using things like fermented foods and higher fiber, at the same time restricting various foods that can be damaging to the gut lining and altering the gut bacteria, such as that would have uh, in otherwise increased uh, inflammation being so, so detrimental. Um, you, in that chapter, uh, focused a bit on magnesium. Uh, and we've talked about this on the program quite extensively, how pervasive uh, magnesium deficiency or inadequacy really is not just in America, but in developed countries around the world, reflecting the lower levels of magnesium, for example, in the soil that grows our crops. Yes. So how do you go about identifying low magnesium? Uh, what might it correlate with in terms of clinical manifestations? And how do you fix it? It, that's that's a great that's an interesting question and, and it's a really good one because I think about it a lot. Um, I was taught, uh, you know, by by one of my mentors and and who helped guide me in this area, that you know it's it's not a dangerous supplement uh, to take. Even though I truly truly want my patients to be eating foods that are, have those uh, nutrients in them and minerals, it's one of the few that uh, if you if you come in super anxious and you really are opposed to taking a medication in any way, uh, you know, I'm not sure that an SSI, SSI would be the most helpful. Um, also, it would take two to three work, uh, three to three weeks to actually work. Um, it's, it's not a bad choice to make. Now, you could do, do it through food as well, and we, we actually try to do both. But if you wanted to take a little bit of supplementation to start, that would be okay. I prefer, though, depending on the level of distress of the patient, to start with food choices and really have them start incorporating, you know, folates and, and nuts and different complete whole foods that would boost their magnesium levels anyway. And if, if someone who has a mild to moderate anxiety, you, you, you can quite easily do that. Um, and usually in my office, they're presenting with, you know, um, you, either panic, anxiety, feeling as though things are changing in their body and they are not usually an anxious person. Something at work that normally wouldn't phase them is throwing them over the edge. Um, and usually it's very specific to anxiety. It's not necessarily mood symptoms, although we very frequently, because of the location of the serotonin, often based, frequently see anxiety and depression run together. Well, I think uh, you know you brought up something very interesting. A couple things I just want to emphasize. First, you said when you know when people are are losing control, uh, that might provoke anxiety. And I think you know the nature of our world these days being so unpredictable, we do have a sense that we have less control over our destiny than we might have had. And I think you know that might certainly be anxiety provoking for a lot of people. And the other thing, uh, two things you mentioned were first the great safety profile in terms of magnesium. I think as you, you know, if people take too much magnesium, 
maybe they'll get diarrhea. Uh, and and you know, maybe there are other things at very high levels, but it's a very safe supplement. And uh, I would just say that for patients, if you want to get a good sense of your magnesium level, uh, there's a test called a red blood cell magnesium level, or also yes. called erythrocyte red cell, erythrocyte magnesium level that looks at the magnesium level within the red blood cell, better indicator than simply having the serum magnesium level. And as you just mentioned, my gosh, uh, what a, I don't think it was your first uh, recommendation. I think your first recommendation I heard was exercise. So uh, gosh, that's got to be, I think, on the top of the list. Uh, beyond that, you yeah. then uh, talk in your book about the value of vitamin D. Mm -hmm. And can we explore that a little bit too? Sure. So, you know, vitamin D uh, is kind of, in, in mental health, I, I think there's there's certainly some good, there's really some good evidence around anxiety and depression. And I do think that um, it's, again, when it comes to things that we can easily obtain through food or through sunlight, or it's a, it's a relatively straightforward recommendation and feels easy, but powerful to a patient. I feel that they can, so, you know, as you indicated in, in Johan Austin's book, Dr. Palmerada, and you know, it's, it's not, we have to think about why people don't necessarily take recommendations. So when I can find something that's easy, powerful, inexpensive to do, I would, would make that recommendation. I still do try to go back to food sources. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, with, with whether it's, it's zinc or magnesium and vitamin D, I, I, I will put together a plan with someone based on whether we check their uh, actual level for magnesium or try to supplement it initially. Ultimately, what I want to do is really move towards a, a good, healthy food plan that's rich in the same things our mom told us, our grandmother told us, you know, you know, eat your fruits and vegetables, eat the whole foods. And one of my favorites is, you know, um, eat the orange instead of a, a glass of orange juice, because it turns out that uh, an orange has, I think I, I, I calculated this a few weeks ago, about three times the amount of fiber and about Six, the, orange, the orange juice from the store has six times the amount of sugar. So, you know, which would you choose? Uh, and certainly fewer calories in the actual orange. So all of those sort of go, go together as part and parcel of some recommendations. Yeah, 12-ounce glass of orange juice has 34 to 36 grams of sugar, which equals basically a Coke. So, exactly. and whenever I say it, people say, yeah, but what about all the vitamin C I'm getting? I mean, as if that's, that's an offset. It, 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 and that's what, that's exactly, that's such a great point because the people just don't, they, they look at that and they think, well, you know, for example, even with oatmeal, well, you know, if you put the ton of sugar, honey, and it's totally processed, um, you know, it's, it, it takes away some of the good benefits. So it's kind of breaking it down that can be useful. And that's where, you know, little things like programs, our food labels are in um, grams, and we actually cook and bake in ounces and pounds. So just, you know, debunking that and saying four grams of sugar is one teaspoon. Then if you're having a little yogurt that's four to six ounces, and it has 24 grams of sugar, would you really be putting six to eight teaspoons in, in plain yogurt? And I think that that just helps people make it more practical and makes it easy, but it also makes them feel more in control because food is something that we can all, you know, take take hold of. It's something you can, rather than wait for medication to work, 
um, you know, you might you might actually be able to leave leave speaking with with one of us and and be able to stop implementing that, those changes immediately. You know, I, it's always about making recommendations that are easy for a patient to follow. And as it relates okay. to vitamin D, I always say my first recommendation is that you take off all your clothes and run around naked outside for 15 yes. minutes every day, even if you live in a big urban environment. Maybe that might not be something you can do. Okay, well, if you can't do that, then why don't we just you know start you with a, a vitamin C, uh, D supplement? Which exactly. is, especially, besides, especially in, in the Northeast, and one of the things that is interesting is if you're sitting at a window and getting the vitamin D, it doesn't work. You really do have to be outside, so you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, in my neighborhood, you might have to keep your clothes on, but but uh, it's, 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 a, it's a funny recommendation. I love it. It's funny. I actually was on a, a national news program, uh, and we were in right off of Times Square at the network, and the, we were talking about vitamin D because the, uh, there was a recommendation that we need to actually get less vitamin D that had come out that day, and they asked me to come on and explain it, right. and that, that, that taking uh, 2,000 units of vitamin D would be toxic, and I explained to the woman who was interviewing, I said, Let's suppose that you took off all your clothes right now and walked downstairs into Times Square Good. on live television. It was, <laughs> I know the people in the control room had their finger on the button. I said, let's just do it. And I explained how much vitamin D you would manufacture. Good. And therefore, you'd get a so-called, by the new definition, a toxic dosage based on Good. being outside for 15 minutes. Good. No, obviously, that's not going to happen. Um, in the anxiety chapter, you talk about, of all things, fermented foods. Why might that be a good choice for somebody with anxiety? Um, so the fermented foods, things like um, unflavored, unsweetened kefir, which is a soured yogurt, uh, or sauerkraut, or uh, kimchi, the Korean pickle, or miso, um, all of these, or kombucha, which is something that people uh, quite enjoy these days, a lot of the, the fermented foods really help. Um, they help our gut bacteria. And, you know, just like fiber helps the healthy bacteria grow, the fermented foods um, really kind of balance out feeding and supporting the balance of the good bacteria in the gut. So, you know, I'll say to patients, it's the good guys and the bad guys, and it's a battle all the time, every day, there are actually more bugs in your gut than there are human cells. Sometimes that's a little scary to explain, but I stick with, you know, you, you really need to take care of this. And so, those foods actually support a healthy microbiome. So if you're starting to, for example, I find it, uh, like we talked about magnesium a few minutes ago, I find it an easy recommendation to talk to people about taking probiotics and fermented foods through, through food because it's something, again, you can leave the office and go to the supermarket and try, try out uh, a kefir or try out something that's different that you may not have done before, and you can start to impact change. And so again, it comes down to really supporting the microbiome in a positive way. Um, and when it comes to things like pickles um, or sauerkraut, we just, with all of those, including kimchi, you just have to watch the sugar content as well. I'd like to move on, if we could, to, um, you, you brought up something in the book I thought was really interesting, and uh, it was in the context of PTSD, which we, um, mm -hmm. you know, certainly something that uh, a lot of people are talking about. We did uh, a program several weeks ago in uh, looking at uh, the use of hallucinogens, for example, uh, as an adjunctive treatment for PTSD. Mm -hmm. uh, having said that, um, you uh, 
correlate or bring to our attention the idea uh, that there may be some relationship uh, with the various sources of glutamate that are around us. Mm -hmm. And uh, how did that idea kind of evolve and, and where are we in terms of the understanding of the concerns over glutamate as it relates to PTSD, but also kind of other aspects of brain functionality as well? Sure. So it really, for me, evolved. It wasn't something that I went into the research understanding, but was uncovered as I, you know, reviewed all of the science around not only the disorder, but what were the nutrition, what was the nutrition saying, and what what did we what did we discover? You know, the uh, I, I think you 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 will uh, will agree with me on this one, David, that, you know, the, the, the science in nutrition is changing all the time, like you mentioned, the vitamin D study. And on one day, you might be asked by the media about something, and the next day, it's uncovered. We've had that happen with omega-3 fatty acids, even though clinically, we have pretty good you bet. <laughs> response with them. Exactly. And, and I, you know, I, I recommend it because, again, it doesn't harm a patient. So glutamates, I, I sort of um, I, un, I un, understood this through the research. And where I'm at with that, is we just try to make sure that people understand um, things that they should avoid. And that's why in each chapter we break down, you know, foods to embrace and foods to avoid. And it's sort of, that, that's a way of putting, putting it together. And, and then I, I would like people to be able to read a little bit about the, the, the science and how we, we got to those points. Um, I do also think that the research is still emerging. Um, and so I, I feel pretty confident that we can make these recommendations, but at the same time, I'm very open to being wrong and as, a, as understanding that things evolve and research comes out all the time. It's about adjusting those recommendations as we move forward. But at the very least, you can, at the Chinese restaurant, ask for no MSG. Exactly. That's, that's a very straightforward and simple thing to do, and, um, and, and I recommend it, absolutely. Um, I will say that I was very happy to hear what you just said, and that is I'm open to being wrong. Uh, that's a great place to be. That's a place of real security with, you know, what your mission in life is and, and recognize okay. that you're going to be wrong. Uh, and, you know, it's okay to move forward and make progress. Uh, I, I find that the longer I do what I do, uh, mm -hmm. the more people will uh, find things that I've said you know, two decades ago when I would say, for example, we should be on a very low fat diet and then say, yeah, but you just told us this. Well, yeah, but the science has changed. I mean, especially, exactly. for example, as it relates to uh, simple carbohydrates versus fat in the diet, I think we're all at a place recognizing how important fat is for the brain structurally and functionally. So you begin right in the beginning of the book talking about things like the Mediterranean diet and, and you focus on the importance of uh, getting adequate amounts of omega-3s. How is that important? So omega-3s are, you know, so, so firstly, I've had good clinical experience um, with individuals who either eat tons of omega-3s through salmon, other sources of seafood, or have come to me because they read about it and they can obtain it as, a, as an over-the-counter supplement and they felt better taking it. So I think that it's a great adjunctive uh, treatment when, when you're working with someone with depression, but I also, again, go back to food sources. I've also found there was a really interesting study on a, on a small group of medical students done years ago that actually showed uh, they used a supplement and um, they showed that they also had low, low levels of anxiety. So I feel 
that it's sort of a two for one um, medication if someone's going to use, and of course, I mean supplement, um, but it, it helps both symptoms and it can be so hugely impactful. And I then try to break down both in the chapter, but also in the recipes, just ways that people can incorporate omega-3s through simple foods that they can eat. Because I do feel that, you know, studies like, like and Haynes and others have also shown us that when you prepare your food at home, you actually consume fewer calories. And when you, um, even if you're not following any kind of special uh, diet or trying to lose weight, you still consume fewer calories um, when you when you eat at home. So I'm not saying we have to do that all the time. I think COVID has sort of changed that for us a little bit. But I am saying, you know, there's simple things you can do that you may not have realized were possible. And incorporating those foods into your daily diet can be can be very easy to do. For, especially for omega-3s. You know, uh, part of our outgoing uh, messaging uh, in these times has been, but now is not the time to cash in on a diet and just, you know, uh, give it up and eat whatever you want. It's actually the last thing you would want to do. We've been talking about it in terms of having a robust immune system, yes. uh, not only being able to deal with the virus at time of contact, uh, in other words, in terms of a healthy innate immune system, uh, but in terms of how you then respond to the virus in terms of limiting inflammation, hopefully uh, reducing risk of uh, cytokine amplification, et cetera, by again, having those types of foods on board. For example, you mentioned the omega-3s as, as one uh, technique uh, to, to limit inflammation and certainly lots of anti-inflammatory foods on board versus uh, refined carbohydrates and ultra-processed foods, mm -hmm. but you're telling us as well during the time of this, you know, COVID infect uh, pandemic, and hopefully, you know, this by the time some people see this for the second time, we will be through it. But, uh, but that said, that it plays such an important role while we're highly stressed, while we're mm -hmm. uh, challenged day in and day out, that the food choices that we make now, from your perspective, seem to matter more than ever. They abs they are, you, you, you've just, again, nailed that, um, uh, uh, David, because right now everyone is struggling in, in some form or, or the other. Um, I've had moments where things felt so stressful that, you know, it, it, uh, something, you know, ordering pizza or, or finding something that was just a quick fix that was a comfort food was so much easier. But again, you know, it's about how do I course correct and how do I share that with my patients? Because the problem is that, you know, it's a journey. It's, it's a, this, this attaining better health, improving how you feel emotionally is a journey. Many people know the connections from wonderful doctors like yourself about how our bodies and minds and are affected by nutrition and so many other things. I think the thing that people don't understand is that food actually does impact your mood. Food actually impacts anxiety. And so if we're making poor choices every day during this, during lockdown or during the pandemic, those are going to carry forward. It's not just the weight. In fact, it might be difficult to shed those pounds, but the problem with reversing the inflammation and leaky gut, the impact on your stress level, your your depression, anxiety, and even symptoms of PTSD, poor sleep, all of that will linger. So it's almost as though you're just doing yourself a disservice. I mean, um, one of the things that uh, uh, I think it was Express Scripts, one of the, com the companies looked at the 
the level of prescriptions that are going on and they are heightened for anxiety medications during COVID to the point that there are certain doses of sertraline which are on shortage. So I think that, you know, I feel that the one thing we can all do um, is that we can eat differently. And on a day that, you know, you, you do choose an unhealthy food, you know, the very next day, try to bring back those healthy habits. If not, over time, the the impact is going to be far more severe, um, not only in the inflammation and the immunity, but also just your overall health, but your, your the impact on your brain. In our book, Brainwash, we actually talked about how um, making bad food choices, for example, or deciding that you stay up too late, maybe not exercising, right. all the things uh, that increase inflammation, for example, ultimately work to uh, di- as a disservice because they tend to lead us to more impulsivity. They tend to lock us more into amygdala-based uh, behavior as opposed to leveraging the input from the prefrontal cortex. And as such, we make further bad decisions that tend to lead us to make further bad decisions. So it becomes, you know, people have a tendency to get locked in and sort of cash in their chips. But I think that what you're telling us today is that, you know, these are off ramps from that highway and that we, um, you know, we could just embrace the notion of changing what we eat uh, based on what you've been describing, uh, that, you know, it can really lead us to uh, manifesting other improvements. But in focusing on on our food choices, uh, in the OCD section of your book, you mentioned something called orthorexia. And yes. I'm not certain that all of our viewers have heard that term. I think it's a very valuable thing to understand for those of us who want to make good food choices. Right. But let's explore what that means, orthorexia, and, and perhaps how pervasive you see it, it becoming. Right. You know, I, I shared that in the book because I also wanted people to know that I I, I want to be, you know, completely transparent. I don't always have success with patients. And the times that I don't have success are often in the field, in the area of orthorexia, where someone has healthy habits and they come in seeking, um, seeking my expertise around how to tweak those healthy habits and feel or be even better. Is there one more food group they should cut out? Should they restrict a certain type of calorie? Should they, you know, change up the um, exercise that their trainers helping them with? And what I have found is that um, there's a certain rigidity with which some of these individuals are thinking about food. It's not flexible and it's not adaptable. So, you know, you you mentioned how we're you mentioned how many people have you know have shared that they're struggling with how what they're eating during the pandemic and during lockdown. In a similar way. These individuals are making healthy choices, but almost overshooting that and uh, trying to, to help them find a balance that is uh, that is healthy for their bodies and their mind is very much what I find I get resistance with. So I might share the information with them, but get a lot of individuals saying back to me, no, but that doesn't make sense because and they're usually really smart, wonderful people because they know the research and they're reading and they really are trying very hard. Except that they 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 not they're being so rigid that they're not adapting what they need to do to feel better. And at times like that, I, I haven't had as many. Um, I wouldn't say no success, but I haven't had success sometimes with individuals who are struggling in that way, uh, because 
I don't want to discourage them being healthy, but I also want to say you, you don't have to exclude one more food group because actually it's unless you have an allergy or an intolerance, you should be eating a whole foods healthy diet and being careful about the types of say, you know, the, the processed foods and the, the, the sources of your food, organic food. You know, um, if you're going to use oil, be very careful about the choices you make. You know, that we offer some guidelines about around that. So, so maybe a little uh, orthorexia yeah. is not so necessarily bad. You're saying people should be much more aware in exactly. comparison to the average, you know, or you called it earlier, the SAD, standard American diet. American diet. And we really should be paying more attention. Um, it might be looked upon in some circles as extreme, uh, but at the end of the book, you talk about ketogenic diet in the context of bipolar disorder mm -hmm. and also, I think, in the context of schizophrenia. Yeah. Our viewers are dialed in on ketogenic diet. We've, uh, we've interviewed people around the world mm -hmm. over the past several years talking about ketogenic diet. Just uh, did another interview with Dr. Matt Phillips talking about fasting and ketogenic diet in neurological mm -hmm. issues. But as it relates to uh, bipolar disorder and even schizophrenia, what is the literature telling us in terms of the effectiveness of going keto uh, as an adjunct to dealing with these issues? Well, firstly, I think it should really only be done in close collaboration with your psychiatrist, um, if because usually individuals with those disorders might actually need to take a medication in order to reach a more stable point if they've had a manic episode or being acutely psychotic or hospitalized. So, you know, I would just say that they, they, they need to have the conversation with their um, psychiatrist directly, but also it in the short term, um, certainly there's been some success with um, use of the keto diet in terms of balancing emotion. Um, in some instances, uh, cutting down on the level of medications but again, this brings me to what I feel is a very important point that I do try to convey, and I hope I did in the book, which is I still prescribe medications. There are instances where individuals, you know, in Boston at Mass General, we, we work in the acute like, psychiatric service, and the call that you don't want to hear, one of our largest bridges in Boston is the Tobin Bridge. You don't, never want to be the resident on call when you when you have someone on the Tobin Bridge. You know that is not the type of uh, individual who's going to benefit immediately from um, from a food intervention or nutritional intervention because they're either acutely suicidal or they're manic and they think that they want to fly and that they can fly. Um, all of which you know I'm seen and, and treated. And so in instances like that, I say that you know that the diet, the keto diet, can be helpful for certain symptoms. Once you're stabilized and you've been working with the psychiatrist for some time and he or she can work with you on interventions and monitor you carefully. So if there's a resurgence of symptoms or, you know, it, it becomes somewhat unhealthy nutritionally for your body, that they can step in and say, well, let's tweak this right now. So, you know, and some of that, uh, some of that information in, in the mental health realm is still preliminary. There's certainly been, been studies, but it's still, I consider to be early, early on. Well, um, I, I'm probably a lot older than you. I, I'm sure that I am. And, and you know, I think as a, a comment to be supportive of medication in the treatment of schizophrenia, you know, when I was coming up, it was all about phenothiazine type drugs mm -hmm. and you know, the side effects as a neurologist, you know, how often were we consulted to yes, deal with the side effects of phenothiazines so or the extrapyramidal issues, et cetera. Uh, so the, you know, the newer generation of antipsychotic medications have really uh, I think 
perhaps our viewers might be surprised to hear me say it, but they've been a godsend in terms of treating a schizophrenia. Yes, a ketogenic diet is something you might think about. Uh, and certainly, you know, there's been a, quite a bit of literature on, for example, a gluten-free diet as it relates to schizophrenia as well. But I think, again, these should be looked upon, I would say, my opinion, and I think yours, uh, as adjuncts uh, for this potentially serious uh, issue that might be the reason you get a call that somebody's up on a bridge, for example. So exactly, it's a very real and life-threatening uh, condition. Well, I want to thank you um, for spending uh, time with uh, our viewers today, with everybody and with me. Um, and I, I thought it would be fair and reasonable to just let everybody know that, you know, before we started recording, you and I had a bit of a heart to heart that um, these are challenging times for everyone. And, uh, you know, while we're all doing the best we can in terms of, you know, looking at the foods we're eating, trying to get exercise, getting out of doors, meditating, paying attention to our sleep, that still each and every one of us, I think, has a moment when you feel the challenge that uh, things are different and disruptive and we can't predict tomorrow and it's anxiety producing. And, you know, I, I was, uh, it was great to, having never met you, but meeting you now virtually, have a moment of heart to heart that, you know, we shared that. Uh, and I think it's great to be transparent for everybody out there who's Absolutely. watching this broadcast that, you know, no one gets a free ticket on this one. Exactly. No, I, I, I thank you for, for you know, inviting me. I enjoyed speaking with you so much. But also, I, I appreciated that moment as well, because it's, it's good to check in with each other and check in with ourselves sometimes. It's, it's not an easy time. And I would be surprised if someone came out saying, I'm, I'm, I'm on top of the world. Um, not because you wouldn't have some moments like that, and you should. Um, but these are, these are challenging times. And the uncertainty is probably what my patients are struggling with the most. Well, great. And uh, best of luck with your book. Uh, I, I took it apart, as you can see. I Thank you. It. And, uh, and thanks for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. Okay, bye for now. Bye-bye. Well, again, thanks to Dr. Nadu for uh, telling us about her wonderful book uh, and joining us today. We really have uh, a lot to learn moving forward about the influence of food uh, well beyond cognitive function, something we've been talking about for a few years, but entering the realm of psychiatry, looking at things like PTSD, OCD, all the initials, right? Anxiety, depression, mood disorders. Uh, what, uh, what a fascinating world it is becoming, uh, offering us so many more uh, approaches to dealing with these often very challenging issues. Thanks for joining us. We're going to be back soon. Bye for now.